The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. So I'm delighted to welcome uh, Jan and Mick, partners at Henk, to uh, today's episode. Uh, Henk is a Dutch-based VC investing in European B2B software startups, typically based in Benelux or the Nordics. Uh, these are ventures that address unproven and unexplored problems and define their own markets. So uh, Jan and Mick, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. One of the ideas that uh, Henk obsesses over is staying power, but you're actually investing in pretty early stage businesses. So I'm curious, how do you go about defining and assessing staying power? You want to take a step, Meg, or you want me to do it? No, I, I can start. I think for us, it's a number of things that we look at there. But first and foremost is okay, what the market they're in. And then we're not necessarily looking at, okay, the market is extreme, extremely big, if we add all those verticals, but okay, the market they're serving right now. So type of customers, is product, same product they're selling for the same pricing, same type of customers at reasonable market share. Okay, is that in itself a sustainable business if they just keep doing that? And something there also to take into account, okay, type of users they serve? Is it something that someone is using on a daily basis or on a weekly basis and very frequently using in the core of what they do? So isn't it something they just check on a monthly basis or that's nice to have really? But really something that they just can't operate without basically. That's sort of the type of software and product that we then look at at those markets where there already is, where we can see the market that is there instead of sort of betting on okay, you know what, they might be able to enter five additional niches, but that's some that probably another startup is also keen to enter. I think that's one side of it. So that is the feasible market in itself. And I think the other element that maybe Gary you're referring to is a piece written shortly after COVID broke and then the market seemed very uncertain for a while. History teaches that that happens all the time. It might never happen again, but it is very likely to happen. And we also are very conscious of that. So we also want to be in the businesses that are around when something like that happens. So that means, I think, when you look at is it being used frequently, there are a lot of softwares that are being used frequently, but maybe as soon as budgets are cut and uh, people are scrutinizing their their software stack more and more, like, what do we really need? We always do this stress test of, okay, is this something you would need in any situation. So is it always saving you costs? Is it always making you money? Or is it a critical component in your infrastructure that you just can't go without? So you can't do anything without it. So I think that's the second element. So staying power, in a sense, is a definition of the market versus rather than you focusing on the team and trying to figure out, does the team have staying power and perseverance and so on? It's a product, I would say, the product fundamental. Okay. Interesting. Now, you're a fully remote VC firm, which I believe is pretty rare. Have you been able to use that to your advantage during the pandemic? I think so. I think one thing you learn very much when you work remotely is to communicate about the stuff that really matters. 
And there are very few moments, like we were, as a team, we're together twice a week. So on Mondays, we have a call to sync on what we're going to do that week. And on Fridays, we sit down with the deal team. Uh, and in, in four or five hours, we go through any problems related to sourcing, any challenges or, or opportunities in the portfolio, anything you can think of. And I think that makes you very conscious of essential communication versus communication that is nice to have. And I think when you look at a deal process with startups, that's also very true. If, if you do things remotely, you have less time, there's more, uh, it's harder to, to, to quickly ask something. And I think what it really has forced us to do over time is to focus on the essentials, which makes us very quick and uh, enabled us to decide just as well as always on whether we wanted to invest or not. Yeah, and maybe to add to that, I think something that I guess everyone has noticed when in a Zoom world is that everything is comes with an agenda. You just follow the agenda. And of course, the chit-chat, the five-minute forced chit-chat that everyone has to do at the start of a meeting. And having been remote and having sort of noticed that, we sort of also know, okay, sometimes you don't need to set an agenda to just have an informal chat to get to know each other. I think we specifically also spent some time with the entrepreneurs uh, that we invested in to just talk for 30 minutes about all sorts of random stuff, no agenda, just to get to know each other. And I think that served us quite well, like, uh, not just having uh, having a more informal relationship and being there for them and then knowing them that they can just call us instead of there always needs to be agenda, we need to set meetings and all that. Are you missing out to some extent on, on deal flow or are you getting back into face-to-face networking and going to some, you know, startup events and so on, rather than relying purely on virtual? So we, most of our sourcing as our edge is done virtually. So if you look at uh, some of the big brand name funds, like the Take a Cliche, Sequoia or Andres which everybody knows them, at least in our scene, they're household names. And they have a bunch of like up and coming smaller funds, which maybe with a very young partnership like ours aren't household names. And you have this famous saying of, uh, I never want to be a member of a club that wants to have me as a member. I think that's also how we kind of look at it. Uh, if, if people come to us, uh, it might be nice and it might be a deal there every time, but the level we want to play at is probably the club that doesn't invite us yet. So we knock on their door and we've built a sourcing engine over the past five years that does everything digitally. And that's getting better and better. And we also believe Historically, if you look at the best VC funds, it was really an outbound game or, or even also in private equity. You approach the best entrepreneurs, they don't approach you. So in that sense, I, I don't think COVID has changed anything functionally. I think we've just been doing what we have always been doing. I do really notice getting back to normal to some extent now. It's the joy of actually visiting companies and spending time with entrepreneurs. It's just it's a lot more fun and there is something meaningful in uh, seeing each other as well. And uh, and it's something it's where we, maybe to add uh, something, I think, where we have been early with the outbound. I think when I started at Hank, we were already doing this six, seven years ago. By now, I think most VCs, the VC in general has become an outbound game and all VCs are doing it. So it's also a bit of a red race that all of us VCs are doing to find the startups first and be the first to reach out. Because if you're VC number 36 doing a reach out, a founder is less likely to take the call with you because they've already wasted 35 calls half an hour coffee chats to get to know a VC. What's the point in meeting VC number 36 that is bullish on you? And I think what you're trying to say makes that we're very focused on building a sourcing engine that continues to find the best things earlier than others, right? So it's almost like some of those quant hedge funds that have these algorithms that they very often actually do the trades for them. And we use that type of 
thinking to find the company first. It's not so much the investment decision as it is the online signal that something company with three or four people is actually worth talking to right now. And that's what we're very focused on. So do you have your own in-house AI specialists, data scientists, building algorithms and so on to give you this edge in sourcing? So right now we have a rocket scientist and a data scientist by training, an analyst and an associate who also do deal flow. So it's a mix. We, the hard thing about this type of development is that you need to be both very commercial to actually understand what the proxies are for an interesting business. I mean, what makes a good B2B software startup at a certain phase? That's a very investment-driven, qualitative question. And we have people who are sort of, let's say, I would call them amateur or highly enthusiastic developers. So we tie together APIs and, 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 and scrape for tools. And I don't know what in a, in a rather informal way. I'm terrible at it, by the way. So that's not my role in the fund. And I should be careful <laughs> what I say here. But uh, so, so it's, a, it's a bit of a hybrid. And we are considering, we notice that sort of the, the development demands are getting more and more technical. So we're slowly, probably indeed, moving towards a phase where we're actually going to have our first full-time developer maker. Am I saying stupid stuff? Exactly. It started out with just the basic things which we, Jan and myself, still could do. By now, we needed the rocket scientist, data scientist to help us, and that will evolve and evolve further over time whilst we gather more data and just have more data where we can't uh, get by with just Excel and a bit of SQL anymore. Cool. And when we last spoke, something that really caught my attention, you mentioned that too many VCs focus on box ticking and meaningless metrics like TAM and churn and MRR, uh, you felt that TAM was only relevant for marketing. And in any case, all these metrics are pretty easy to manipulate and very hard to verify. So which criteria do you really focus on when you're evaluating potential portfolio investment? <laughs> so I think on the, on, on, on the let's say, the, the market or product side, we already in, in quite... Tito mentioned what we're looking for. So products that properly add value and will be enduring. And I think it's good to add that we, we, we don't make any predictions what that will look like in four or eight years. It's really, is it a product that is adding value now? And in terms of competition, we don't look at, can Google or Microsoft do this? Because history is a great teacher and it teaches you that the biggest problem of those companies isn't money. They have plenty of money, but it is focus. It is the ability to find good people. And it's the inertia they have because of skill, the inability to organize like a startup. So we're very focused, okay, is this startup the best startup? Will they win any head-to-head -head deal from anyone, whether that's an incumbent or, or a fellow startup? And do we feel like it's really the winning team? And, and that's where and, we- and, and maybe to add to that yeah. last point, of, that we also don't believe in many markets there's just gonna be one winner. What we also often see is that uh, in the VC community, we should, uh, sort of a, a winner has been claimed. And okay, this company is well-funded. They have claimed this market, so no other company that market becomes fundable. It becomes very hard for those companies to fundraise. Whilst we do believe, for example, in our portfolio, is a company called CloudTalk. I mean, they operate in the same market as Airpool and TalkDash that have both raised hundreds of millions of euros. Well, if we look at the customer reviews, CloudTalk seems to consistently outperform those on call quality, which is a core function, and a lot of other features as well. And so even for those companies, even when it's not Google, Amazon, Microsoft, you can still outperform the bigger players because you focus on another type of demand. Demand has changed, or there's just other opportunities to do things in a different way that older companies can't adhere to. And I think that's something where we just see there typically room for a number of players that could 
become great sustainable businesses. And, and it might sound now like we're much more market focused than we are. I think those are counter examples of where maybe actually the market matters a little less than the product itself and the team. And to give you a little bit of an idea on the team, I think the key philosophy that we have is that a founding team is going to go somewhere or not. And we don't want to be part of a, of a startup where we feel, okay, this is a great product. The market is phenomenally big. I can totally see where this is going. We just need a good VP sales or something like that. that we don't do that. We look for the team that has the right mix of commercial talent, hiring ability, a product development, which, which are different mixes in every market. There's not a single formula for that. And we really try to think, okay, are we almost scared of missing this because they are going to go somewhere with or without us? They are phenomenal. And I think how to assess that is really sort of, in a way, in the details, you see that people tend to uh, value charm and charisma over maybe obsessiveness and pure determination because charisma and charm leads to a nice story and a nice conversation and, 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 and people give you the feeling they're very strong in the conversation. But actually, some of the most phenomenal founders out there come, come across as a little bit shy or awkward. But if you listen carefully to what they do, they're just a massive train that is going 200 kilometers per hour and, and they won't stop. And I think that those are the small things no, that we really that. try to excel. Sure. No, what we also see is that it seems to be over, uh, resume and names on resumes also seem to be overvalued. But look, okay, someone that has worked at a great big, great growth company for like say one or two years is suddenly seen as, okay, he's been through the journey, great experience. So he's going to be a great founder, even though this person might have been employee number 250 and has been at the company until employee number six. He doesn't necessarily know how to start a startup. He might, but what we see that's check the box that many we see many investors do well is we also see that a group of, for example, recent graduates or people that don't have those names on the resume can just be as likely to be successful because they have been at university and have already been selling things and have just always been able to get ahead and get things moving. And that's something that you can't see on someone's resume or by checking LinkedIn. You need to speak with them. You need to get that feeling of, okay, they're moving ahead. They're moving forward in whatever they do. And, yeah, and I think we always envision for, let's say, 25-year-old people that they need to be the best people you can imagine being in your year in university as a sort of like visualization. And then indeed, it's like maybe the person who got reasonable grades and at the same time they were selling half a million of business in their 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 e-commerce store and if somebody the older somebody gets the higher the bar we always say that uh 73 year old post delivery person who did that part-time their entire life is probably not going to found the next ui path and so and and that's where i think we as a fund really try to focus is the younger founders because it's more ambiguous there and that's where we feel we have an edge. And I think a second factor that we're really looking for, which relates to what Mick just said about, I don't know, for example, mid-level management of a 500 people growth firm, taking the brand away, but not being exposed to what it actually entails to be successful because there are several layers away from, from how it's been done is, is the mentorship factor. It's something that struck me personally the first time when I was reading a book in university about Alexander the Great. And it turns out his father was a phenomenal king that could teach him all the well, combat style stuff. And then he had a personal tutor and that was Aristotle. I was like, how the F is that possible? <laughs> but if you look in history and, and across different forms, like even the people who start something at a very young age, right out of university, they have had this exposure to like, look at Bill Gates, who in high school had 
availability of like one of the most advanced computers of all time, or Steve Jobs. He worked in the office of the CEO of Atari when I think he was still a teenager. And you see that uh, in history, and I think in our portfolio, SendCloud, there are university dropouts and they founded their business when they were 21 and, and they arguably had no one to speak to. They, they, they worked at uh, T-Mobile before in the shop, just selling stuff. You'd say, okay, there is no greatness. But, and that's they did something that Elon Musk also did. They, they just kind of like stalked people who were very successful that they wanted to model after and it got bigger and bigger. And they started with maybe when there were five people, a firm of 100 people in Eindhoven where they're based and now they're speaking to listed companies. How do we get to an IPO? And we see that people are in the core information flow. They somehow get there. And it's definitely not a requirement to be born in the right situation. Like it's something that anybody can do from any type of background. And, and it's a big, big success factor we're also looking for. You've got quite a differentiated philosophy or approach to investing versus most of the VCs I speak to. Most VC investments are in partnership with other firms. So I'm curious about the challenges you might have in finding VCs to partner with you who've got the same approach, the same philosophies. Is that a challenge for you? I, I think to, to some degree, because sometimes, and I think so, so the essence of investing, and that's very hard in venture capital, in our view, the essence of investing is seeing something other people don't see. So it can very well be that we invest in a company where at the time we feel that it's absolutely phenomenal company. But for example, in that pitch about the thumb, they're not following the rules of the current day VC market. So even though it's a highly fundable business, if you would change the pitch a little bit, it is not right now. That's also something we enjoy. I mean, we're much more focused on actually running the business. That's also the feedback we get than building a perfect pitch to, to do your IPO. So something that we do encounter is that we work a lot towards the next follow-on round in making the company presentable in a way that it maybe addresses a larger audience in terms of funding. Uh, no, and that indeed is a challenge, but also, I guess, a value. No, which means that we actually spend a lot of time with the founding teams there to sort of refine their pitch. Okay, and what are the VCs to talk to? And that isn't, there isn't necessarily one VC that fits every portfolio company of ours. It's very much dependent on, okay, what are they doing? And then sort of try to find the VC that's the best fit for them. And typically it might not be the classical ones every single time. That's very dependent. And in the end, Let's also be, I mean, if the company just shows strong growth, strong business case, in many cases, they are able to raise. It might just take a little time because there's something odd uh, about them or they don't follow the rule book that's out there to raise a funding round. So it sounds like you're actually spending quite a lot of time mentoring your founding teams, maybe more than the, the typical VC. You sound like you're, you're pretty hands-on. Uh, are all of your portfolio companies and, and founders and, and leadership teams, are they very receptive to that? Or because I sometimes hear from CEOs and founders, oh, I would just wish the investors would leave us alone so we can get on with running the business. <laughs> well, we hear the same thing. And I think we're very specific with where we are hands-on with. I think that's, so we're not necessarily a hands-on investor. I wouldn't uh, classify us as one in many cases. Uh, we're just, however, very specific on a few things where we feel like, okay, this is something where we can be hands-on with and where it's helpful for the founders and where they can appreciate it. And fundraising is just one of those examples. Yeah, and maybe, maybe there, are, there are two sort of fundamentals underlying that reasoning, right? So, so one is what we see is that, that, that the tendency when people are board members to suddenly become uh, an expert in all subjects. So they, they, they feel they, 
I think that that's a bias, also insecurity that makes a lot of sense. It's like, okay, shit, I'm on the board. I need to give advice. Whereas if you logically think from your position, there are a few things you know, and there are a few things uh, you don't know. And, and I think we've always been most impressed and we see a lot of very successful people just saying don't know eight out of 10 times. And then the two times out of 10, they do know. They're very fierce on what they know. And I think that's why we have a lot of discipline as a board member. So we will never force anything uh, upon a founder in that sense. So I think that that's sort of the funda fundamental underlying dynamic. Tell them which market to go at. Tell them, okay, you now should hire someone senior because oh, you're struggling with this, just hire someone senior. Now I think that's something where we're very sort of, if we can help, happy to help, but many times just the founders, they're in that business. They're probably working 24, thinking about their business 24 hours a day. And we have a few portfolio companies, so we can't be thinking about any, all of them 24 hours a day. So they just have an unfair advantage versus us. And I've probably thought about all the problems they're encountering already and how to solve it. And at the same time, if you, look, sorry, if you look at our portfolio science, that's relatively small. So we do anywhere between two and four investments per year because we have... We don't really have the hit rate model where we do a few investments and we hope that one or two do very well. It's potentially naive, but our aim is that actually all companies we invest in will be a success. So we're very focused. And that means we don't we only really go for a deal if we truly believe that it will almost certainly be a success. And in terms of portfolio time spent, even though we're very adamant about not pushing anything, you see that we end up spending quite some time on hiring, fundraising, KPI setting with portfolio in the end. And it's, it's a bit of a mix. Probably if you look at us in the cap table, we're one of the investors you spend more time with. But at the same time, we're extremely clear about that we will not push it because we believe in the team that is sitting there. And so usually organically, we are quite involved in the end without ever saying you have to do anything because you're not an entrepreneur to, to have somebody who just owns a few shares tell you what to do. You should be the one knowing what you want in terms of input and whatnot. Yeah, and telling us what you want to get out of from us. That idea that you're going to try and help every single one of your portfolio companies succeed rather than the traditional view is that 10% of VC-backed firms will succeed and maybe one of those 10% companies will, will be you know, super successful, nine will be quite successful, and the rest will be allowed to fail. Did you go out from the start when you set up the fund with that philosophy that every company we invest in will succeed? And did you share that vision with the LPs who invested in the fund right from the get-go? I think it was a bit of a development, in all honesty. I think you're operating in a market. Also, as a VC, you have a product. And we don't believe, for startups, but also not for ourselves, if you have exactly the same product as everybody else, that it really is differentiating or the, the secret to success. And if you look at the numbers historically and you look at the greatest funds, all of those funds were largely driven in terms of return by, by a few very good deals. That's also a hindsight bias because it's always true that if you have such a company, it's a great fund. And I think we've been thinking a lot about so our own style. So the way we look at Tom, for example, or markets, the way we look at founders, and we feel that our edge is in really assessing what those great teams are and that we have a knack for that. And if you then start looking at our return profile that we built over the years, we have a lot of firms that do really well and also a few that do extremely well, but almost all of them actually do really well. So and when we mean really well, it's anywhere between building a very solid 10 to 15 million ARR business that will generate very good returns in any case. So it's something that evolved over time and that we feel is a differentiated position 
Like we want all of our companies to succeed. In that sense, we're not opportunistic. We can spend time with you. We will back you. And it feels like an opportunity right now to do it a little different. Sorry. No, and also means we can be open to companies that might be addressing rather small niche right now that is considered too small because it won't, if you just look at the current market, they won't be able to build a unicorn there or a decacorn in that market. But that might actually over time find new niches, new geos to sell into. But that's considered unfundable in the early days because they only serve this very small market with no clear path to additional markets. So we feel like, okay, if they're just succeeding there, they will find, eventually they might find another geo, another niche, another product. If you look at the evolution of a lot of the, the, the decacorns at this point in time, for enterprise software, many of them started out with a super specific product for a, a tiny vertical one. Example we really love is Viva Systems. And they had a, well, you could say CRM, but I think it was a glorified contact list for pharmaceutical companies. So a very small, narrow product that salespeople in pharmaceuticals could use. And you'd be like, oh my God, how small is this? But if you look at their market cap, now last time I checked, it was in the north of 40 billion. And they did so because they grew their product every time. They are not just selling to the pharmaceutical industry anymore, but to any high reg highly regulated industry building product on product and customer vertical on vertical. And you could have never predicted that. I think they struggled tremendously to raise a series A and only barely managed to do so, never raised any funding after anymore because everybody kept saying, this is too small. And I think we want to be that VC for that type of unicorn eventually. Is there anyone out there since you launched Hank, any company startup that you really had a good look at, were really keen to invest in, and it slipped through your fingers, the one that you you regret that you didn't manage to um, take a stake in because they've gone on to be a huge success? I don't think we, we tried this. So if you look at success in investing, it's, it's having a high concentration of success in what you do do, and you will always miss. If you look at the Carlyle Group, a highly successful private equity fund, the founder of the Carlyle Group, David Rubenstein, always tells an anecdote that he could have invested 100K in Facebook because it, I think Mark Zuckerberg was one of the roommates of his son and he didn't do it. And, and I think that's the whole idea of circle of competence. And we for sure missed businesses where we just didn't see it that were very successful. I think we don't regret those. I think that's investing. And you should be careful to try to understand what you didn't understand because at some point you'll have to invest in everything. And then if you do what the market does, you get the market return. And on average, that's not a differentiating profile as a VC. We do regret sometimes that we really like the deal and that happens probably to every fund and they went for a different fund and those really hurt. And there we wonder, okay, what did you, what did you do wrong? And I think any company that I can think of where that was the case, I'm still angry and upset and sad. <laughs> <Wow>. And probably <laughs> cause us to change the way we operate or sort of try to figure out, okay, what do we need to do differently? And sometimes we can't, but in many cases, okay, what can we do differently to not let that ever happen ever again to us because we just want to lose that feeling. And on a more positive note, tell me about a company that you've invested in in the last couple of quarters. Maybe it's even under the radar. Maybe it's not been publicly announced, but a company that you feel really passionate about and really excited about. I think Park Depot is one Munich-based company. We've invested in them in, I think it's March of this year. And I think that's one thing they don't they make revenue from, they install cameras on free parking a lot, think McDonald's, think supermarkets, and I think most people think, yeah, is that really a problem to sort of control the cars that are coming in there? But when you talk with the franchisees 
van McDonald's, they are extremely upset by non-customers staying at those parking lots, not buying any uh, burgers, flurry, McFlurries, or you name it, there, and just going to a football game, the doctor, and taking the spot of a customer. And just a solution like that that doesn't intervene with customers is highly appreciated, and they've managed to grow like crazy uh, to all through Germany, uh, now being used, I believe, by one in every five McDonald's there. I think that's something which fitted us very well because they don't make money from MRR or it doesn't fit the MRR mold for most investors. Their revenue model just fit, fitted us very well, just fit their customers. So we're open to it and we're fine the way they operated it. And it's probably a very boring industry, but that's probably also why we liked it actually. One from you, Jan, one that you're really excited about and, and the, the reasons why you chose to invest in that company. Yeah, so, so as a team, we, we do most of the deals together and I, I equally love Park Depot as Mick. I, I think an example of one where I'm sitting on the board is Leeway. That's a Paris-based company. So we, we actually invest across Europe as our domain. And that's a contract management software solution. And I think that, that Park Depot is an example of a market where there definitely is no Gartner quadrant and you wouldn't know how to rank it. Contract management software is quite a bit more Oh, that would probably look a bit more like a red ocean in the end. But we it's a very young team, uh, Leeway, just like Park Depot, by the way, super motivated, and they're extremely strong on the product side. So they, they really know how to build a product that people actually want to use. And that's one of the biggest problems in contract management software right now. There's a lot of focus on functionality, like we have AI doing this and that. And then it's, it's very focused also on larger companies uh, with a thousand plus employees who have a purchase department. And they want to um, they want to take the box like yeah you can do this automatically and that automatically and, and Leeway takes your approach of building something that people actually really really want to use and they are not going to say that you can do this or that and then when you turn out to use the AI engine it turns out it interprets eighty five percent of the data incorrectly so you could have better hand type that they really use stuff that works and that you want to use and they were extremely and, 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 good at branding and themselves and marketing. To add to that, sort of that fits the existing way of working. I think that sort of okay, people want to use it because they the leeway workflow is something they, as you're now doing contracts, you would understand. So it just makes the current way of working better instead of it being a complete new way of working. Gradually over time, they might get there and it becomes a new way of working. But initially, people just want to continue doing what they have been doing all along uh, and not change too much. I think that's an inherent bias in everyone. And I think that's something they've adapted their product very well to. This idea that you're not doing your own individual investments, that you're investing in every company as a, as a team, is that also a bit of a differentiator for you? Because I, generally, I hear from other VCs, even though other partners have been involved and have been briefed, there is usually, or there usually appears to be someone in the firm who kind of takes the lead on an investment and regards it as as theirs. So your approach that we always invest as a team, is is that a, a bit of a differentiator for, for Henk? That's a good question. Uh, honestly, I'm not entirely sure. I think we're also, we're a relatively small team. I think that's a deliberate decision because we want to maintain the very highest quality. And part of the very high quality is that you have such good players that you can 
have anyone work with anyone and get the same quality. And I think a lot of VC funds have grown so large, their organizations probably have some of the inertia that we mentioned about large organizations. Maybe they've hired a few people that they don't know for sure meet their quality standards or spending a lot of time managing. We're a six people investment team. If we, over time, we grow to 10, we'd be very happy. Also looking at history before uh, the private equity funds, for example, became franchises. When KKR did the RJR and the Bisco deal, which was, I think, in the 20 billion range, so a massive deal. And they had a billion dollar plus fund easily. I think actually the bigger even, they were 11 people, including staff. And I think if you look very carefully at the highest performing investment funds in history across hedge fund, private equity, venture capital, for example, benchmark, you do see that small teams on this single fund do the best returns. And I think that's our focus. We just want to work with like a highly synced, super good team and that also makes it very easy to work together. Um, and we often also work in a larger group because Nick is better in certain areas than I am and the other way around. And we want to use that at a maximum. And it's also a result of not doing 20 deals a year. Like we have the time to support each other in that sense. Final question from, from me, and I'm assuming you'll come up with slightly different answers, but we'll see. Who from the world of investment, from the world of VC, or from the world of kind of business management and entrepreneurship, who has really inspired you uh, with their philosophy, with their outlook? Who would you suggest I or my listeners check out for their inspirational views? Yeah, so I think one former VC that very few people know about is Toto Wolf. He is the, currently running the Mercedes Formula One team. And there are some very, very good podcasts out there where he explains how he works and why he does things. And I think... He's extremely intelligent and very focused and ambitious. So that will be one that, that inspired, I think, make both of us quite a bit over the past few years. I have to ask. To add to that, I think that's... Sorry, Mick, I was, was going to say, I have to ask my buddy, Lewis Hamilton, for a quick intro. But over to you, Mick. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I think that's maybe generally for us that we don't lose, just look at business uh, for that inspiration thing. Both of us are it's sports fans and not just doing it also watching it and just following and reading actually also a lot up on the wolf section or something that's all has also done investing but also just think just before this call gary we discussed the captain's class and think for example a good example is bill russell who was the captain of the boston celtics while they did a record run i think everyone knows michael jordan by now bill russell has won more nba titles i'll say he's a better basketball player but he has won more titles and he has been shown to be a winner, sort of constantly finding ways to improve the team uh, as a clear team player and not sort of standout performances, maybe as much as Michael, but and just really like reading up on those things as well about those athletes and historical figures and sort of get inspiration from that for business as well. Yeah, I agree. I love these uh, sporting analogies and, and the idea that we can learn so much from a uh, um, super successful sports stars. Um, awesome. It's been great getting to know you both, Jan and Mick. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of the Startup Scale Up Game Plan. Thanks, Thanks for having us. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.